0: Friends, hear this passage of scripture from Colossians, chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock, our source, our strength, our song, and our Redeemer. Amen. I wonder if this has happened to you recently. You're reading a passage of Scripture that you know very well, maybe decades, and suddenly, because of the current circumstances we find ourselves in, something new jumps out at you. Well, that's what happened to me in this particular passage. Musicians tend to focus on the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, portions of the passage that uh, seem to have different categories of music. And we try to figure out exactly what those mean but I realized, based on our current circumstances, that this passage had much more to offer. It comes, along with its companion passage in Ephesians 5, as a conclusion of a series of exhortations about how to live a Christ-centered life within the body of Christ. So we have three exhortations in this passage, followed by a particular pedagogy, a methodology for implementing those exhortations, And that happens to be one close to my heart. It's singing. So we begin, let the peace of Christ dwell in you, or as some passages say, rule in your heart. This is not a focus on personal peace or meditation, but a relational peace among people. In our 21st century context, I think we can see it as a relational peace regardless of ethnic origins, cultural perspectives, gender roles, socioeconomic status, and personal orientation. Christ, the Prince of Peace, is the ruler and arbiter in our disputes. The Prince of Peace calls us to do something actually quite daunting. Live as one body in all of our diversity. The body of Christ. Well, there's a song that comes to mind for that. It's by Lee Gyeong-yung, a very prominent South Korean composer who was born as the son of a Presbyterian minister in North Korea before the division of the country, but migrated south soon afterwards. Lee became known as one of the primary composers in South Korea and the president of the Conservatory in Seoul. He composes a wide variety of musical styles, some for orchestral works, chamber works, choral works, and hymns. And one of his hymns, I think, expresses this idea of this particular exhortation so well, Reconciling People. Please hear it. O Sosa, O Sosa, Pyongwae Imgum, Uri mum iruge Ha sa. Come now, O Prince of Peace, make us one body, Come, O oh Lord Jesus, reconcile your people. If we were together, you'd be singing that this morning, but you'll have to do it with just me for right now. The second exhortation, be thankful. Well, that's a loaded term in Greek because it implies thanksgiving and it implies also the Greek word for Eucharist. Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. And so I think when the early church thought of being thankful, they also thought of it in the context of the table. And it's very difficult to to share a meal with anyone you dislike or have conflict. I think the sacrament has taken on a new feeling for us as we celebrate these days in a scattered fashion. Perhaps we are coming to value it more under these circumstances. Think of a celebrative meal with family or close friends, in which you have profound gratitude for their presence and a nourishing meal. At this moment, we are commanded to be thankful, however, in the face of uncertainty and fear. Well, there's another song that came to mind. This is the Tizé refrain that comes out of the Basque region, southern France and northern Spain, a region that suffered much conflict and a political turmoil over the years, but I think it expresses thankfulness in the face of fear. El Señor es la meva fuerza, el Señor, el me you el la salvacion, in el confio y no tink por, in el confio y no tink por. In the Lord I'll be ever thankful, in the Lord I will rejoice. Look to God, do not be afraid, lift up your voice as the Lord is near, lift up your voice as the Lord is near. The third exhortation, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, dwell among you richly hearing the word, studying the word, applying the word, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it hurts. That's where the admonishing part of this passage comes in. Well, one song, anonymous from a Canadian source, I actually learned from John Bell, who was to be with us next week, but I think it expresses the imperative very well. Listen to the word that God has spoken Listen to the one who is close at hand. Listen to the voice that began creation. Listen even if you don't understand. I like the part, listen even if you don't understand. That's why we gather as a body of Christ. Little by little, we put in juxtaposition what we hear in the word in our current circumstances. Now, I really, really wanted to teach this to you this morning. So we're going to try something. If you'll just put down your coffee for a moment. And sit up straight and get a good breath. I'm going to sing a phrase, and then I'm going to leave a little time for you to sing it back to me. And I'll be listening carefully. So here's the beat. Listen to the word that God has spoken. Listen to the one who is close at hand. Listen to the voice that began creation. Listen even if you don't understand. Listen, even if you don't understand. I'm sure that was very good. The particular instructional method for embodying these exhortations is singing. That's interesting because singing is in the DNA of the Judeo-Christian tradition, especially in a congregational form. It's part of our identity and in almost all Christian traditions, but not necessarily in other world religions. For hundreds of years, the gathered body of Christ has sung, with few exceptions. If we had time, we could sing stanza after stanza of hymns that we know that exhort us to sing. As a matter of fact, we began with one earlier this morning. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. I have to admit, I'm restraining myself right now because I'm really tempted to lead you into an old-fashioned hymn festival right now, but uh, we'll save that for a later time. But we know also at this time, exhortations to sing place us in a conundrum. We can't get together and fill our sanctuary with hymns and our singing led ably by Michael Simpson at the organ. Furthermore, if we do come together, the evidence is clear that singing indoors is one of the more dangerous communal acts in which we can participate. I wouldn't wish our twin commandments on anyone, but if they can reinforce the importance of the pedagogy of singing as a way to nourish the body of Christ, then I hope we will seize the moment and learn to do this this more fully. I really wish we could sing right now, sing in solidarity with the oppressed and the suffering around the world for whom The COVID crucible has left them destitute, personally, economically, and physically destitute. I really wish we could sing right now in solidarity with those who have lost their voice, lost hope, and lost their life. I'm haunted by a question posed in an old hymn. It's the refrain that appears at the end of the stanzas, a beautiful melody that goes a little like this. How can I keep from singing? I think the text writer was asking a rhetorical question, one where the answer is obvious. We can't keep from singing. But I don't want to take anything for granted. I have spent several decades of my life working with some very good singers, as well as many people who are afraid, unable, or feel powerless to sing. And I have to admit, it's a greater privilege to work with the second group to help them find their voice. Finding one's voice is about much more than the physiological act of connecting breath with the vocal mechanism. Singing is so personal that it brings to the fore a whole host of deep feelings and experiences that, unless acknowledged, may inhibit and even stifle stifle the singing process. I don't think our scripture, though, is only about the physical act of singing. As much as that is essential to my identity and vocation, not everyone gets the same pleasure out of using their singing voices. For any number of valid reasons, some cannot commit to the level of breath that it takes to vibrate the vocal mechanism in song. Those people, and perhaps some of you, are no less, however, the benefactors of the power of the singing community. Much of scripture uses singing as a metaphor. The first one that comes to mind is Job 38, 7, that beautiful image of the morning stars singing together, perhaps the first cosmic chorus. So allow me to recast the idea of singing for our time. A dear seminary mentor of blessed memory, Donald Husted, put it this way. The question for the Christian is not, do you have a voice? The question for the Christian is, do you have a song? For those of you that sing, this is an admonition. Don't confuse the singing process with having a song. For those of you who don't sing, I hope this is a word of comfort and hope. Even if you do not physically sing, you can have a song. Even if we cannot raise our voices together now, we can use this time to tune up our song. Once again, I would not wish our twin pandemics on anyone, but I believe they are helping us to tune up our song. The COVID pandemic is challenging our congregation in its 175th year to reinvent our ecclesiology, what it means to be the body of Christ, body of Christ gathered or scattered. I think we may want to clarify that part of our song and live into it for the future. But let me be clear, we are not going back to our pre COVID world ever and we should never go back to the way we were. Christian memory, anamnesis, is the remembering, the reliving of the past. Nostalgia, on the other hand, is a death knell for a faith community. The second pandemic of culture and racial oppression causes causes us to respond to a different beat. It causes us to sing songs of solidarity and reach beyond our sanctuary into the street The theme of this song is this. How do we learn to love our neighbor? It is not easy to sing at a new tempo that this requires, to get our bodies to respond to the beat of justice. People who are expanding their song repertoire are always a little bit uncomfortable. Our passage mentions admonishing one another. Our 21-day racial justice challenge is tuning our song and asking us to respond to new rhythms. Over 180 of us participating in this challenge are admonishing each other and ourselves. There is no peace without justice. There is no joy without justice. If our community is to have an authentic song, we cannot go back to the old tempo. We can never again be satisfied satisfied singing only the old songs. Our scripture addresses an interesting attribute of our song, singing and making melody in your heart. In the musical world, we cultivate the skill of inner hearing. That's the ability to read a musical score and internalize it without actually making a sound or hearing it out loud. We may not be able to sing out loud together right now, but we can work on our spiritual inner hearing. Will you learn the song of compassion so well that you can sing it in your heart? In the realm of the Holy Spirit, this is learning to read the score of human pain and despair and then responding as Christ would. Will you learn the rhythms of solidarity with the oppressed so well that they beat in your heart? In the realm of the Holy Spirit, this is bringing the beat of your life in sync with the heartbeat of God. Singing this song in tune is not so much an aesthetic practice, but an ethical process. The ones who have the songs in their heart do not always have the best voices, but their songs ring with the beauty of truth and echo with a transformational resonance. So let me close with a story about one of those people. I remember being with someone who didn't have much of a voice but had a beautiful song of solidarity. I was a seminary professor in a small North Carolina town in 1986. Its location was barely an hour from Greensboro, where on February 1st, 1960, the Greensboro Four, as they were later called, began a new movement of peaceful demonstrations. Four black freshmen from North Carolina A&T University initiated pacifist activities, including sitting in restaurants unofficially designated for whites, drinking at posted white-only water fountains, and moving beyond the back of public buses. Though removed by over 25 years from those events of 1960, I was aware that racial tensions remain just under the surface of our small town in its daily activities. Evidence of decades of some systemic racism were visible in the inadequate housing conditions and public services available to African Americans in our community. The segregation of blacks from whites, literally across the railroad tracks from each other, further deepened this cultural and socioeconomic chasm. Given this history, I was particularly disturbed by an announcement that the state leader of the Ku Klux Klan had requested and was granted a permit to hold a demonstration down the main street of our small town of 6,000 residents. I joined my seminary colleagues in concern about the effects that a KKK rally might have on our community a community that needed healing and justice rather than a public display of racism. As a result, many of us encouraged the seminary students to join us along the parade route in a silent protest against the KKK. So our strategy was silence. Well, the day of the march came on a clear Saturday morning in May. Well in advance, the Main Street was lined with many of the representatives from the seminary community and the townsfolk, I even recognized some nearby clergy from Raleigh and Durham, many of them who had experience in civil rights marches and demonstrations of the 60s and 70s, some even with Martin Luther King, Jr. At the appointed hour, a military-style procession slowly made its way up the street to a martial drum cadence. The participants were dressed in Army-style fatigues and carried rifles. I prayed they weren't loaded. Riding in a lone Jeep was a North Carolina state leader of the KKK surrounded by his honor guard. I had never seen anything like this. Frankly, I was paralyzed by what I saw. The presence of evil was palpable. I watched in silence and disbelief as local high school students ran out to join this macabre parade chanting racist slogans in support of the principles of the KKK. Then some of the seminary students were angered by this and attempted to restrain the teenagers, leading to a struggling back and forth, and it looked like a big brawl was going to ensue, and we would be on TV cameras, and it would deepen the long-established racial rifts that already plagued our community. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder a retired Baptist minister from Raleigh, long known for his participation in the civil rights movement and public stance against the war in Vietnam, whispered to me, Mike, help me sing. It it just didn't register. At first I thought he was crazy. I had no experience in these kind of events and I felt like I was in a large theater watching breaking news stories in a slow motion fashion. Though I was a voice teacher, I couldn't get any sound to come back. Come out. When I heard the minister start to sing, though with a voice of conviction and confidence, of many peaceful demonstrations, I got the idea. We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Well, he wasn't a vocal soloist by anyone's estimation, but the sound was one of the most beautiful that I've ever heard. He had a song, and it was well-practiced. He helped me and those close by to find our voices, and our song quickly grew. Our ill-conceived strategy of silence in the face of evil gave way to a full-bodied song. And as that malicious procession passed, we found not only our voices, but our feet and we spontaneously closed ranks behind the demonstrators, ushering that little KKK band out of town on the wings of our song. Somehow, and I don't know quite how, the struggles between the seminary students and the local teenagers seemed to subside almost immediately with the sound of our song, which replaced the racial racial epithets. Reflecting later on the experience with students, Some noted that our singing not only demonstrated overt support and solidarity with the black members of our community, but also performed a musical exorcism, taking back our town. I often wonder what might have happened if that Baptist minister had not started singing this venerable song of the Civil Rights Movement. People who have a song also find their feet. Their song and their witness then soars. With whatever voice you have, sing until the song is in your heart. You never know when you will need it. In my experience, silence in the face of injustice leads to acquiescence and paralysis. Singing, however, embodies solidarity. Deep in my heart I do believe we shall overcome someday amen